So good evening, everyone. How was your picnic? Swim. Good, huh? Two thumbs up there. Cold water, but hot day, so. Uh-huh, yeah, we, we hope that won't happen. So again, we are just this evening, uh, we follow our schedule and ask for questions. Any questions? Yes. You mentioned uh, yesterday the gopis, Daivas and Sankrebar, and I was trying to study a bit, but just only got more confused about the, if you could say something about the, the especially the difference between the Gaunavatis and the Sanchoibhavas. Well, you know what a Stayibhav is. Stayibhav means a, a dominant emotion that uh, awakens within one, a dominant emotion or sentiment of love for Krishna, like loving Krishna as a friend or as a parent or as a lover. So, there are five of these. There's romantic love and parental love and fraternal love and uh, love in, in servitude. And then there's the passive kind of love called chanta. So these are the primary, these are sentiments that are said to be prominent enough that in combination with other ecstatic elements cause one to rise to the uh, experience of rasa, hmm. the, the, the essence of the height of uh, emotional, uh, spiritual, emotional uh, rapture. Then besides these five, there are twelve or seven secondary rasas, like laughter or comedy, uh, the pathetic rasa or karuna or kind of compassion, adbhuta, amazement, astonishment, and, and so on. There's seven of those. And, uh, and these also, in a, in a limited way, comparatively to the five, have the capacity to rise to rasa. So when one has a dominant emotion, let's say, as in friendship, like Arjuna we're talking about in our discussions in the morning, uh, about Avatar Tattva from Bhagavad Gita. So he's, his friendship, friendship is the Stayibhav, but sometimes the secondary rasas, the Gona, secondary rasas, they are very strong emotions also. They may rise to the point that the primary sentiment, while remaining, recedes to the background a little bit. So friendship might recede to the background and comedy might take over. The humorous expression of love. It's not that the comedic uh, hasya, rasa, can sustain on itself as a dom in a way a dominant emotion like sakya, like friendship can. But they're special, these emotions, in comparison to others because they have this potential to rise to the point of, of rasa, at which time, as I say, the other, the primary rasa, kind of recedes a little bit to the background. Now, 
Different from that is the Sanchari Bhav, which is sometimes called the Vyabhichari Bhav. It's just a different way of saying the same thing. Sanchari Bhav means like an auxiliary Bhava. So it comes and it goes. So your dominant Bhava may be um, one thing, and, and then other, the Sanchari Bhav will come and in the context of being in love, in romantic love, despondency may come, for example. So they've been analyzed in love psychology, in Indian dramatics and, and so forth, where Goswami borrowed his language to explain the spiritual, emotional world of bhakti. Uh, there may be, I mean, any, uh, uh, there are a number, I should say, of these auxiliary rasas that, that come and they go. So they're transitory, they're auxiliary. Sancharya means more like transitory. They come and they go. They, so the dominant rasa remains the same. And they augment it in a way. They, they, uh, um, in a passing kind of a sense. So they don't, they're not dominant. They don't dominate. They don't take over. They don't have the power to cause the primary rasa even to recede to the background, like the gona uh, rasas do, and rise to rasa in, in, in themselves. So that's the difference. So what what we were talking about briefly, I, I believe, was the idea that that the Krishna is the object of love for everyone in Vrindavan. So what is the position of Radharani? So other than the maidservants of Radharani who see, who attach themselves to the to Radha's bhava, her ecstasy, and serve that, in in the context of that, they serve Radha and Krishna. That's their object of love. Everybody else in Vrindavan has love for Radha also. But that love is like a Sanchari Bhav. So it's um, it doesn't it doesn't change their um, dominant rasa. They don't have a dominant rasa or uh, sentiment in relation to Radha. So this is the idea. Does that help? Yeah, a little bit technical, but uh, important nonetheless. Yes? In trying to understand the, what you just said, I, while you were speaking, I'm thinking in the, on the material plane, we may have a friendship with someone and that, you know, like really called, you know, thick friends. Mm-hmm. But sometimes some of the mood will take over. Mm-hmm. That's like a sanctuary. Or we go on, what do you call it? Or like Let's say you're with your friends, you're all enjoying a friendship, and somebody cracks a joke, and right. then you guys are all falling on the ground and laughing right. and so forth, so it's taken over. But, but you're still all friends. Yeah, yeah it, it comes and it goes. The friendship's always there, something like that. And in the sense that they can't be a dominant emotion. Emotion. No one's always a funny man. Mm-hmm. Not all. Sometimes. Even the clown, even right? Even the clown, he gets serious sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they, they can draw examples from this world. After all, that's what Rupa Goswami has done. Because there's an expression of love in this world, although it's not properly centered, and therefore it's, it doesn't satisfy, and it, it frustrates ultimately. Nonetheless, the psychology behind it and, what, and all is much similar. So in Indians, in India's secular um, theory of drama and the arts and poetry and so forth, when they're putting together a drama, then they you know, put together the different characters and and uh, draw, seek to draw out different emotions and so forth, so that the sympathetic audience 
Well, actually, the idea of drama is that you'll feel those emotions, that you're actually transported into the movie, and, and the actress that you've identified with is crying, and you're in the seat crying, too. This is, this is the kind of the idea. Um, so it's not foreign even to the Western culture, but all these names are in Sanskrit and so forth, and Rupa Goswami writing in Sanskrit drew from this to talk about something that hadn't really been talked about to a large extent, like in terms of Vedanta commentaries, um, you don't find that. The Ramanuja, Madhva, and so forth, they were taking from the Upanishads and trying to demonstrate their the position of Vaishnavism over monism in that way. And Rupa Goswami, within the context of Vaishnavism, took a position that Krishna is the Supreme Godhead, and he did it by showing from an aesthetic point of view. He said Krishna is the, is the, is the deity that celebrates all, all sentiments and in relation with whom all sentiments properly centered on the Godhead can be experienced. He's that manifestation of the Godhead that all loving sentiments can be experienced in relation to. So he's Akhila Rasamrita Sindhu. He's the ocean of, of Rasa. He's Rasraj, all these names, Rasyuka Shekhar are there connoisseur of, of love. So he's the perfect object of love to repose our loving propensity in. And, the, and of course, the basis of that love is, is this service because love is sacrifice, ultimately. At least in the beginning, it feels as a sacrifice. In the end, it doesn't, of course. But So, so the idea is that it's, it's a serving ego. You see gopis and Krishna's scope of friends. They don't look like they're serving, maybe, especially when one of them is... Krishna's friend is wrestling him to the ground. You think of what kind of service is that? But the foundation of that is a serving ego, and they're engaging in such affairs with Krishna for the pleasure of Krishna in friendship. Well, Krishna's brought them into that degree, but underlying all this is, is, is a serving ego. So, therefore, we emphasize the cultivation of the serving ego, and the intensification of that, in a sense, is, uh, comes to the point of friendship or parental love or so on, romantic love and so on. So this whole world of, of the scribe of Leela in the texts and depicted in art and so forth, all the movements are Anubhavs and um, Sattvikabhavs. These are externals. Sattvikabhavs are uncontrolled movements, like tears pouring from the eyes, hair standing on end. They're not calculated or controlled. Anubhavs are kind of like with some thought. He puts his hands up or something, or it goes like this, you know. You know, so this is like for in 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 uh, virarasa, uh, in in sakiras and virarasa are very compatible. Virarasa is one of those gona ratis, gona rasa of sh- of chivalry and fighting. Yudavira, so they they mock fight and so forth. So he goes, guy goes like this, you know, street arms. Come on, like that. <laughs> those are anubhavs. This is a, it's all a kind of ecstasy. When it rains, that the, cl- the cloud is crying. Actually, that's what's happening in ecstasy. There's no need for sun, as we talked there about, about the other day. Moon, electricity, but there is a moon. There is a sun, and they are all devotees, and they're all in ecstasy. <laughs> they're all serving in a particular capacity with a certain mood and so forth, and facilitating the whole drama. So it's a whole world of ecstasy, and he's described all the movements. Drawing from love psychology, identifying them, the certain types of of uh, of, of ecstasy. So the whole, the feeling, the whole spirit of it is all bhava, 
rasa. And that's what we need to import from there. We tend to want to import in an external way. And there's some value to that also. But the real idea is to import the, the, the bhava, the spirit of it. You know, in other words, for example, the varnashram is the social system there. So we try to think we'll just establish the varnashram everywhere, and then we'll have Goloka Vrindavan. You know, you're going to be that's, that's not. <laughs> therefore, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu rejected varnashram. Varnashram is a is a social system where people, some people are um, they're kind of a class system, if you will. Mm-hmm. But it's all centered on satisfaction of Vishnu. Like the body has different parts. They all function to serve the stomach and thereby get nourishment and so forth. So it's it's just a superficial s- structure for the sake of the, the drama, if you will. And uh, what's going on there far transcends that social social religious structure may, that may have an application in the world to one extent or another. We all have certain psychological, physiological makeup and dispositions, therefore, and we should learn to move according to those that we might feel in, in material balance and thus be better able to pursue uh, you know, the, the jumping up the, to touch the stars of spiritual life. We you know, start with the two feet on the ground of material balance. That's the whole idea of Varnashram. It's to come to sattva and that will be, mean different things to, to an extent for different people in the context of being psycholog- psychologically and physiologically uh, uh, well adapted, let's say. So, I mean, what does that have to do with Krishna Leela? You know, it has very little to do, it has something to do with a horizontal kind of religious and social and psychologically balanced foundation to build a house of bhakti on, to go, to go up to the vertical affair. So, with regards to vertical life, it, you know, it doesn't have a whole lot of basis and you could go up without it, but it's, you know, it's a good idea to have some balance if you're going to make that leap. So, so if you try to just import all the details of that here, without the bhava, you have nothing. It's just an empty kind of a shell. So we have to create an environment that will invite the bhava and make people and, and, and attract people to that, to the culture of that. Other details of how to arrange that that is kind of superficial. This is the real essence of the outreach, if you will, from the godhead, from the parampara, to create a situation that will foster the, the bhava. And we have some cultural trappings and so forth, and to some extent they may be useful and helpful. And if we find they're not, we, you know, they're not, they're not essential. The role of a woman, you know, the role of a woman is, you know, is whatever it is today. It was different thousands of years ago and so forth, for example. One cultural, you know, kind of item. Sure, the gopis stand in the back, but... But if you, if you, the women come to tell me, say, oh, you all stand in the back, they're, they're just, what kind of sexist organization is this? You know? <laughs> Which is true, you know, materially speaking. You treat them like souls, like they're supposed to be treated then. And you get, then they, they're encouraged to pursue the bhava, and then they go to the Goloka and stand in the back, which is to stand in the front, as it turns out. The gopis have the highest position, so it, it, it only, it's, it only, and it's an appearance. So you take an appearance there, and see how, how distorted it can become by trying to transport that here. It becomes a chauvinistic, sexist, uh, you know, discrimination that's unbecoming and has no, no place in, in spiritual life. 
So it's going about the whole thing backwards. Therefore, if you study the Bhagavatam carefully, it's not, it's not a lesson on how women should behave in the world. It's a lesson of the, of the ecstasy of the gopis, the dedication, the self-surrender of, of the gopis. Hmm? And the thought is to try to imbibe that, to bring that, and to create an environment that's conducive to that. People will be encouraged to participate in. So, you know, these are the, this, these are the, this is an example of what may happen. Trying to understand that affair, it's, you know, talk about it is trying to, like, teach music to deaf people. We, we invariably are going to take, interpret all this from our conditioned perspective. And we're going to get it to some extent and so forth. If we can get it enough to be encouraged to practice, hopefully we can really get it more and grow. So we have a certain understanding of it. It's being filtered through our cultural and conditioned uh, status at present. Therefore, we need good guidance to keep pushing us forward so we don't get caught up on some superficial appearance or thought of what, what the essence is when it's not the essence. It doesn't have anything to do with the essence. And there's a lot of that going on. I mean, and it's, it's a funny thing because it all goes on in the name of not needing an authority. The authority has already come and gone, you know, the Prabhupada, you know, fanaticism kind of thing. Nothing could be more apparent that they need guidance, need, need guidance yeah. Need to be, uh, you know, centered, essentially, what, what, this, what this is about. So, Brahma, you had a question? In the, uh, in Armas, there was a, a statement that you made about the cosmology of the Bhagavatam. Mm. Just recently, and you seem to discount. Uh, you seem, well, the way I read it was that you seem to say that it was actually wrong. Whereas previously, in a sangha, we said we kind of quoted Sridhar Maharaj, and he said that it was. Uh, he 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 acquainted it. He he equated it with uh, Arjuna's vision of the Vishvarupa, mm-hmm. where it was a subjective vision. Of you know, so in that sense, it was reality. It was, it was subjective, although on a material plane, it m- might not be the same thing. You know, and Prabhupada, he seemed to even make a more concrete mm-hmm. idea that the Bhagavatam cosmology was correct, and that we should try to be able to outline it and diagram it and actually build a model. Mm-hmm. So, uh, my question is: is uh, is it wrong? Is it just a big mistake? Is it, you know, like, before Copernicus, there was, uh, uh, you know, the Catholic Church believed the earth was flat, mm-hmm. and when that came out, it was a big heresy, but now they accept it. Is it wrong? Is this objective vision of Sukadev? Is it concrete? And can you mm-hmm. explain that for me? Mm-hmm. Well, um, uh, I think that... Um, I think that there's some scope for talking about it as Shudamar's talking about it as, as a subjective vision, as you point out, that that Krishna showed Sukadev the world in a particular way, and so he talked about it in that way. He might show it another way to another person and so forth. I think that's there's some scope for for um for looking at it like that. But someone would question, what would be the purpose of that then? You know, and it so much contradicts what, what he's seeing through the telescope. And then you'd say, well, Krishna's showing them through the telescope, you know, that. And so it's, it's I don't know how much capital that, you know, that, that would, credence that would get you in a, in a discussion in today's society. 
I think it's a kind of a midway point between where you know Prabhupada was looking at it, as you say, in a more literal way. And uh, and I think you know there's there's something to be said about that uh, the subjective vision and you know we 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 see what what the Godhead wants to see and and so on. I mean, but then if you take a telescope and you're a devotee and you look through it and you see the moon, I mean, are you going to see something different than what somebody else is going to see who's not a devotee? And um, if so, you think you could document that and all the devotees are seeing it differently and. So, so I don't know, it kind of breaks down in a sense. I think that, that the world, material world, is, is what Sukadeva says in the Bhagavatam. It's vast, and he says nobody can understand it. When he's asked by Parikshit Maharaj the king to speak about the material world as one of the energies, the shaktis of God, which, uh, so, that, so that the point being so that Parikshit could have more reason to think wonderfully about God because of the wonders of, of, of the material world, Sukadev plainly says nobody understands it, and nobody can understand it. He says best described as a, as a as a as a kind of a transformation of the gunas of the modes of nature, and it's like uh, like magic shells, you know. Where's the pea? You know, it's over there. It's over here. So they're always moving. Rajas, Thomas, and guna and and sattva, and that's a very kind of really stepping back and giving a very kind of broad definition of of what it is. And then he goes on to say that, that the symptoms of it by the local you know, people, means like the Puranic historians and so forth, the way they've looked at it, is like this, that's what I'm going to tell you. He doesn't in any way make a, take a stand that this is how it is definitively and so forth. But this is like the science of the time looked at it like this. So I'll explain it to you like this. And, um, you know, science changes and evolves, so... I don't see any problem with looking at it the way science of today sees it, with with the caveat that that's relative too, according to Sukadeva. And I think it's 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 clear. I mean, science looks at it carefully, and if you look really deeply at the way science looks at it, they admit this is like, who knows what's going on here? Look at the subatomic world, or you look at then the, the, the astro, you know, physical. World and these uh, there's a, there, there's the postulation of multi multi universes. They're trying to do math to demonstrate the possibility of that, and so forth. And they're coming up short. And some people are saying, "Well, we still we there must be more universes because if there's not life here, the chances for life to form without intelligence are too small. It doesn't make any sense. We have to attribute some intelligence to it. We don't want to do that." So. There's got to be many, many universes, and then the, the odds will be less. And so they're doing the math to figure that, and it's really, really abstract. It's really abstract and really pretty uh, subjective and speculative and so forth. Of course, you know, unless they have the math that, uh, objectively, then people don't, don't accept it. You know, it doesn't go in the book. But then again, they give a lot of credence to the theories and possibilities and so forth haven't been demonstrated, so that they're, they're, the thing's changing all the time, um, in one sense. It's, it's, uh, at least their vision of it is. They, they, they're finding one thing and, and, uh, and, and seeing that they looked at it wrong before and so forth. So I imagine that'll go on forever. What does it be then if there are many universes, which is the Bhagavatam's positive, a multiverse kind of, uh, outlook 
of material existence, then laws could be different, obviously, in different universes. And it's just like, we're just, you know, got a pea brain, the whole of human society put together. It's just a speck of dust on, a, on, a, on another speck of dust, on a big speck of dust amongst millions of specks of dust. And it's just like unfathomable how broad, how vast is uh, the material existence. And so different people at different times with different technologies and techniques and so forth are going to make a recording of what they think is out there and what it's like. And the Puranic historians and so forth, they had science in those days. I think you have to understand that. They weren't sitting in meditation and realizing that there's this, that. They had some kind of science in ancient India, for example. Uh, maybe crude compared to today's standard, but India's, you know, gave us the zero, and Einstein said, where would we be without zero? He said, with regard to India, where would we be without it, you know, scientifically, without zero? So they had their ways of objectively looking at the world. And my reading of the Bhagavatam is, that's what Sukadeva is saying, is that this is how the historians of the time, uh, referring to the Puranas, which were looked at as histories, they were a different kind of history because they were history, historical recordings of events that they thought were of spiritual significance for the most part in the world. And um, rather than just a chronology of, of events, which is what Western history is, is like, there was a kind of a history of the feeling of the time that they wanted to record and so forth. And so in order to record the history of a feeling of the time, then you have some license to talk about it in different ways. If I want to tell you what the feeling of a particular time is, I could say whatever the hell I want, you know, add this and embellish the story and extend it and so forth to try to bring you the feeling of the time. So there's the feeling, for example, of the descent of the avatar. And they want to talk about it in such a way as to, to bring you in there. So there's this kind of poetic license that, that then you get things that don't seem to be believable from a rational point of view and, and so forth. But they're really trying to convey in a different way history. They had a different idea, an outlook about what was, what was important, what was worth recording, uh, remembering, and, and so forth. So they were kind of history books of the time, but, they, but they're not analogous to history books of today. And so they have, and in the Bhagavad has, has this description of the cosmology. Other Puranas will all have some description of the cosmology. I think it's one of the aspects of a Purana, perhaps. I'm not sure, but at least I've many of them. That. I've heard that as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little different in every one. Yeah, and they're different in different ones. So there, was different, there were different opinions amongst the Puranic historians at the time. They weren't as drastic you know, or dramatic as, as the difference between then and, 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 and now and so forth. That's one thing. And then there's the whole idea of a subtle, like when, when, when you have Sanatana Goswami writes Priyad Bhagavatamrita, which is basically a description of the essence of the Bhagavatam. He doesn't deal with the Bhumandal and all this Jambadweep. He just talks about subjective planes of spiritual experience. And he talks about them as if they're, they're objective planets, if you will. But it's, what he's really talking about is a subjective experience of turning within to different degrees towards your, yourself and your source by different methods. That's what, it, what he's talking So that's what the Bhagavatam is really about. So it's, it's not really you know, a definitive book on the universe. Um, what it's saying cosmologically is that the universe has intelligence. That's, what it, that's its, its main real uh, 
emphasis that's consistent throughout the Puranas about um, about the, the the universe. It's not a dead thing. It's alive. It has it has intelligence. There's consciousness behind the world. Hmm? That's the main kind of emphasis. That's what you're supposed to catch, and and that doesn't. And so if you if you go there and you put a mirror on the moon and you know get measurements back and then you know that's how far the moon is and you mean you make you you've pretty much gone there and we're living on the moon practically by the math you know they went there and got rocks yeah but they also got other things they figured out where to put satellites and stuff and so throw out your cell phone if you don't believe that people went to the moon you know you're talking on the you know that's a moon thing there or you know a space thing space exploration and so forth has has provided a lot of technology the math and whatnot science and that we use readily today that people couldn't live without. So I say practically you know, they're living on the moon compared to the idea that they didn't go to the moon, which is another kind of a thing because the moon's made out of cheese and they didn't get any cheese when they went there. Or <laughs> you know, you know. And then then the, and when you have the Bhagavatams, like Briyat Bhagavatam, just speaking about these different planes, like it's like for example, he talks about heaven. He's talking about mind, mind stuff. So what are the possibilities in mind? Looking at mind as a, as a uh, not just like some little thing between your ears, mind as a stuff, and it's more subtle form of matter than, than the gross matter. It's more subtle. And so there's many possibilities that lie in a more subtle plane than in a physical plane. Like probably just to say, in the physical plane you can see gold and you can see a mountain, but you don't see a golden mountain. But in a dream or in the mind, dream means mind. In the mind, you can see a golden mountain. And now, how real is that gold mountain? Well, you know, it depends how strong your mind is, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the idea is that there's a whole realm of mind, and it works. It hardly has been understood by science that wants to just call it the brain. So they don't accept that the mind is an ontological, it has an ontological status unto itself. They just think it's the brain. The brain, if, if you finally connect it in the right way, boy, you get a mind. Disconnect, and so it's just, they want to reduce that subjectivity of mind and all, all of their you know, aspects of mind, what to speak of the soul, they want to reduce it all to the objective, to matter. So, whereas in the yoga uh, world, then, we accept that the mind is a stuff, actually, and it's a subtle form of matter. And so there's all types of possibilities that lie in there. So this um, swa, you know, heaven, buha swa, you know, it, it's a buha swa. It's it's mind stuff. So you hear what it goes, you can. It's thought that one transmigrates from or reincarnates from one body to another vehicle. This subtle mind, which has all these desires and impressions and so forth, it forms. It causes the formation of matter in a particular way, a particular birth and a particular body, all a result of the, your pre- mental preoccupation. Yad, yad, uh, tad, what is it? Tadbhava, by the, by the bhava he gets the next body, Gita says, by the, by the preoccupation of the mind. And you know, it's very practical. I mean, you, see, you ever see old, an old couple that's been together for you know, 40 years? They start to look like one another. Have you ever seen that? They start to look like one another. Because they're both meditating on one another all the time. <laughs> they actually start to take on those bodily characteristics. It's fascinating. 
So, you know, mind over matter kind of a thing. So this is all dismissed in science because there are a particular approach to it, but we see mind as a stuff, and so there's all kinds of possibilities. So if, if you, then you want to look at it from that perspective, then you're not looking at it from an objective world, hard, you know, through the telescope type of a, of a look. And then there are worlds, the ideas within mind, worlds of, of intelligence. The Brahma-loka is an intelligent world, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Chandra-loka, you know, that's sometimes identified with the moon. But why is it identified with the moon, Chandra-loka? Because moon presides over the mind. And that's why the full moon gives such a nice, gives a nice peaceful mind. Your mind feels so, so, so. So they have this sense, you see, that the stellar influences have some correspondence with our psyche, and they affect it, just like in astrology. You know, science doesn't accept astrology today because they can't prove physically that the stars influence humans. But you can do, you could, if you, if you do enough just astrological charts, it's going to be hard for you to think, Wow, how'd that guy know that? You know, he says you're born under this star and, and this such and such and this house rising and so forth, and therefore you had two kids uh, on this date and this date. And he, I mean, that's pretty powerful. <laughs> Jung, you know, he was very much a psychologist, forerunner of you know much of modern psychology. He was very much influenced by astrology. He just couldn't like, he just couldn't turn away from the fact that wow, these things, they're, these are there's accuracy here. So there's some subtle, you can't prove it physically, show it. You know, they say, well, if its influence is there, we should be able to measure it, right? Well, maybe you don't have the tools to measure subtle forms of influence. You know, if an ant says, well, you know, or a two-dimensional, you know, entity says, well, you know, if there's an influence on our life, we should be able to measure it, right? Right. Well, you know, if you don't like, your experience is only two dimensions and something's coming from a third dimension, how are you going to measure it? Hmm. You don't have the tools to measure it, so it may be more subtle. In other words, the influence is there, but more subtle. So, you know, when when you look at it like that, then there's a possibility for these worlds in a, in, a, in a subtle kind of yogic sense. But you're not going to see them through the telescope. And then, if you try to take a description of the world like that, that comes more from that perspective, and then interface it with the modern world, it doesn't it doesn't match up. So I don't think it should be dismissed, but it should be dis what should be dismissed is the idea that that no, you know, the the sun uh, doesn't have an orbit, or does it have an orbit? Or it, the, the, the sun the sun has an orbit, or um, because in in the way, for example, in the Bhagavatam, the cosmologists describe the sun has an orbit, but I think in modern science it doesn't have an orbit, right? I think it does. Or does it? I don't I'm not know. Sure. It but I think that the sun moves. What? It doesn't have an orbit, but it rotates in the, the same spot. The sun moves. In the same the spot. Planets okay. move around the sun. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. That's something like that. But but at any rate, so to try to fit that you know kind of description and insist that has to be and all the other has to be thrown out is very um, unreasonable. When practically speaking, for example, you're living in outer space. You know, we are living in outer space. The cell phones from outer space. Right? Or kind of, I mean, where are those satellites? <laughs> They're up there somewhere. They look like stars if you look up there. <laughs> so who's without a cell phone? So you're living in outer space, practically. And then you want to deny that they're going anywhere, or is anything happening out there because you read something in a book, an ancient book that has a lot of value, 
and, um, and, and more value than what you're going to find from, from science, but you know, it imports into it science of the day to some extent. That's the one side. And the other side is like Brihat Bhagavatamrita. If you want us to understand Bhagavatam, you go to Brihat Bhagavatamrita. How are the worlds described? As I said, these are, he's, all, he's describing as if tangible lokas, worlds, a subjective reflection on the, on the self, going within. That's what it's all about. When he talks about heaven, he talks about Maharlok, Tapalok, Satyalok. He's talking about Karma Mishra Bhakti. He's talking about Yoga Mishra Bhakti. That's what he's talking about. Different types of, of yoga and the experience that it affords. And you can be sitting in one place, one right here, and be, you know, in that sense, in one of these lokas, if you will. So um, that's another way to think about it. And so I would, I would go to Brihat Bhagavatamrita, and that's what Sridharmarsh wanted to do also, when Prabhupada wanted to build a planetarium in Mayapur to demonstrate the, something about the Bhagavatam. He said, build, build, the, build the Brihat Bhagavatamrita, which is the essence of the Bhagavatam. That was the original idea, but Prabhupada then was... T- and I guess led to believe by some of his students in science who, who had faith in him, but they're, they weren't that mature in kind of making a thoughtful presentation to him, uh, led him to believe that they could defeat all of you know, the modern scientific findings and prove what the Bhagavatam says. But if you go to Bhagavatam, there's no question of proving physically. It's an invitation to experience the inner world, the subjective world, and through a scientific, if you will, system called yoga. So, I mean, that's kind of an overview. I don't know if I've given you a conclusive answer about <laughs> whether, you know, where's the Jumbo Dweep or, or, or whatnot, but I, I guess I have, and that's, um, I think that's an accurate reading of the of the Bhagavatam. Now, you know, why Prabhupada presented it one way, or Sridhar Marsh obviously had a little bit more of a nuanced way of, of thinking about it, and um, um, you know, they may be for different for different reasons. One of the main emphases of Prabhupada is that he wanted to break the faith of his disciples in um, scientific materialism. Personally, I never had any because I wasn't an educated person, so it wasn't hard for me. You know, I just bought into whatever you know he said because he had so much love for me. So I, you know, reciprocated and kind. Um, but then you know, you come around and if you want to disseminate these type of ideas. You've got to be familiar with how people think and so forth. So you get a little education on your own here and there and have to think about it rationally to people who are going to think about it rationally. And I mean, Prabhupada made a very good rational argument. It was a cornerstone kind of an argument, which was basically that with the instruments of your senses or an extension of those instruments in the form of microscopes or telescopes, you're never going to get perfect knowledge. And that's a good argument. That's, that's a very good argument. But that doesn't mean to say that a lot of the knowledge you get won't be perfect, but you won't get perfect knowledge and comprehensive knowledge. You won't get knowledge that will fully satisfy yourself. That's perfect knowledge that makes you perfectly happy. That you won't get. Hmm? But you, you might get perfect knowledge about um, you know, something, relatively speaking. Or, you know, really it's not even perfect knowledge. It's, it's, it's knowledge that can be utilized I mean, it's very, what's a line? What's a point? You, know, it's like, you can only talk about these things in some practical sense by which you can get something out of them. But what are they? 
what's the point? Look at one point, and you go to another point, look back at it, and it looks different from that side. And it's like, so he meant to emphasize this point, and it's a good one, that, that, that insisting that, that knowing will be derived from an empirical exercise, uh, comprehensive knowing, is, 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 a, is folly. And so that's kind of a, you know, he wanted to get, you have to look at the history, what he was trying to do, where he was, he was starting from ground one outside of India with this type of teaching never before, and, and so forth. So he had certain emphases, and, you know, he may have even, who knows, he was empowered by Krishna, so. He may have even believed what he said, you know. Krishna's showing him <laughs> subjectively, and tell it like this, you know, and, and so and it worked, you know, in time and circumstance, as it's supposed to. And then when time and circumstance change, then you've got to find the essence of that and reapply it. So this is a task today, and it's, it's tough because people um, have, um, tend to gravitate towards the fringe of the idea, towards the circumference rather than towards the center. And um, relative aspects of the teaching become the absolutes for them. You know, I've met devotees who, who are, you know, they're they're convinced that um, that um, the United States never landed on the moon. Probably had some doubt about it in 1969, but he didn't have 40 years of evidence, you know, to support it and so forth. Then again, maybe they didn't. Who knows? But I mean, they, they're certainly up there in some capacity, doing something that that's it's, it's not just a you know some conspiracy. You know, or what not to dupe the public, yeah. Uh, here's a follow-up uh, question. <laughs> uh, so, if, if, uh, what, if I understand it correctly, you know, you're saying that Sukadev's vision of the, or Sukadev's description of the universe in the Bhagavatam is, um, it's, it's a subtle, uh, experiential, kind of, uh, it's not concrete, it's not a concrete thing, but it's more... It's more uh, a mind experience, the experience of the mind, like something like samadhi, you know, something like that. Um, but if you accept if you accept that idea, then that opens the door to saying that the whole whole Bhagavatam it doesn't exist on a physical plane. Like, for instance, we say that Krishna appeared on the earth 5,000 years ago, right? But you, know, you wrote an essay one time and said, there's no historical evidence for this. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to find any historical evidence. People, they go around and say, well, there's this thing that shows that it's a, a rock uh, bridge, uh, you know, the science have found the bridge of Ram that goes from Sri Lanka yeah. to India. But, you know, that's all just wishful thinking. You know, that, that, there's no historical evidence for this as a concrete reality. It's more a internal experiential thing, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. a, a, a samadhi kind of a thing that's going on when they talk about it. But they talk about it in concrete terms. Mm-hmm. So, comment? <laughs> well, um, first of all, I don't think that necessarily the description in the fifth canto of the cosmology is necessarily a samadhi type of a thing. I mean, you could look at it like that, and there are subtle, like like I said, if you go to Brihad Bhagavatamrita, I would look at it the way Sanatana Goswami is. He's talking about 
samadhi, internal subjective experience. There is an objective description of the world in the Bhagavatam, and I think it comes from what science of the time, how they looked at it. So then it's incorrect? Yeah. Okay. Well, 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 it's, 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 um, outdated, incorrect. It's outdated, it's, it's, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, but but that doesn't mean to say that what they see today is all correct either. I mean, it's rel- It's a relative. Let's put it like this. It's relative. Hmm? It's relative. Um, and today's view is relative also. I guess you know, there's some absolutes to it too. But I mean, it's 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 a partial. It's a, it's a way of describing it. But yeah, I think it's an outdated cosmology that was was current. To, to an extent at the time in religious circles, in secular circles, which were pretty small, I guess, in those days, that wasn't, there's evidence that there was a different thinking about the universe in secular circles at the time, even then. So, um, yeah. And again, I mean, it's not even clear to me, to be honest with you, that, 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 that the fifth canon of the Bhagavatam you know, what's the author's intention there? Is it really to describe the world or is it something else? And like I said, if it's something else, then you can put it any way you want to bring out the essence. And in one sense, what he's trying to do in the Bhagavatam is to say that the material energy, in that section, the material energy is so fantastic and it's only the secondary energy of the Shakti of the Godhead. It's so far out, it's so fantastic Parikshit Maharaj, who he's talking to, who wants to know, that Godhead is so worshipable, so like incredible, that this whole show is behind him. That's what he wants to say. So you've got, you know, rivers of mangoes, and you know, <laughs> I mean, there's so he's taken a, that's another way to look at it, that uh, that's what he's, he's, he's making a point, and, and, and then his, his whole point comes out, right, in the sixth candle, because the material world's got all these regions. It's fascinating. It's wow, and uh, and uh, and so the Godhead behind it is, must be incredible as well, and that's the spirit of it. And, uh, and then in the end, the last part of the description of the world of the cosmology is these hells, all these different hells. It goes to there, and then Parikshit Mar says, "Wow, God!" How he follows up and says, "How can people be saved from these hells?" And then what does he do? Sukadev tells the story of Ajumil. He says, "There is no hell." That's what he says. That's the teaching. Well, guess what? There is no hell. For devotees, for people who are spiritual, this has no consequence. So the whole show is, you know, it's, it's, so that's really what the book's about. So I think the way to look at the Bhagavad is what's the book about? And then you can see where you can catch the essence of that and where the author or the speaker is taking a license to talk about where he's importing in some thought of the time and so forth and uh, stretching a story or, or whatever. You know, thousand heads, thousand or ten thousand arms. He's a big guy, in other words. You know, <laughs> he, had, he had a big brain. It's, there's, there's a fair amount of that there. And uh, to take it all literally, um, there, there's, a, there's a point in emphasizing the, the uh, literal interpretation of it, too, that, that Prabhupada made. And... Um, I think that if he had just given a very metaphorical or, you know, kind of explanation like I'm giving, it wouldn't have had the same power to bring people on board at the time. 
but it, but if you push it now, it'll people go overboard. <laughs> people go overboard, or if, if they don't, they're stupid because the boat's sinking. That's sink. That's a sinking ship. Hmm? Well, there's too much information now. There's too much yeah. alternate information. You know, it's a different world. The yeah. information age is completely different. Yeah. If somebody says something, you can look it right up on the internet, and you can find all conflicting opinions, and they make more sense than the your the thing that they said. So mm, yeah, yeah. If, if you're a thinking person, intelligent person, you say, oh, "Sorry, I'll skip." Uh, yeah, and if you look at Prabhupada as a person, he was very, you know, he took firm stances on things, but he's very flexible. He had a, an objective to, to make devotees and get people, turn people into devotees and get them on the spiritual path. And he'd say whatever he had to say to do that, to make that happen. That was, that's what he did. That's the whole idea of hooker by crook, sell the book. That was his whole thing. Whatever he got to say to get people to go and, and, and be better people, and become sacrificers and givers and so forth. I mean, within limits, you know. Mm-hmm. Then he would, he would, he was flexible. So if we're going down this, that's why he, that famous letter from his disciple Krishnadas, who couldn't put together like the descriptions in the Bhagavatam and modern science. And Prabhupada said, well, "Don't worry about it." Then you know, there may be metaphorical, allegorical descriptions in the Bhagavatam. Yeah, that's fine. You know, that, don't let that bother you. Just think of it like that then, and chant Hare Krishna. So he gave his disciples. License to think differently about it, and that different thinking that that student needed at that time is needed for most people at this time, in order for it to be to have a thinking kind of uh, uh, religion. Now, some people don't need to think about it, and that's fine too. And they just like you know descriptions of the you know rivers of mangoes, and that's cool too. <laughs> and the jumbo deep and, and all, and it's 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 whatever works to get you to explore through yoga in a systematic way the uh, uh, ultimate reality. And you know, there's many sides to it that will, will show themselves to different people and relative to the, to the approach or the extent to which you can apply yourself in a particular approach. So I guess um, then you, know, you, you, you want to say, well, you can interpret the whole Bhagavatam. The Bhagavatam is an historic event. I mean, in the beginning, yeah. it says that the Bhagavatam came from the mind of Vyas, right? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, that there was, uh, Vyas was in Samadhi, and then now came the Bhagavatam. So that makes me, you know, the way I think about it, this question, I have a question that, that the whole thing is a, is a historical event like we've kind of been taught or led to believe, where it's more really a hard experience yeah um, well uh, I don't think that you you, you need to um, decide that it wasn't a historical event of thousands of years ago um, and there's the whole we're having a discussion of avatar tattva so the whole idea that God can descend into the world have an influence and so forth um, he doesn't come in and like you know do magic, I guess, but he, 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 he's the, the idea of the talk about the avatar is that God's transcendental to the laws of nature and um, he brings uh, the opportunity into the world for transcending the uh, material nature and so forth. Um, so I wouldn't go so far as to say there's no, no such thing as an avatar, a crossing of God you know, into the world. I think that uh, I think that uh, 
that there's, there's good reason to to uh, say that Krishna appeared in the world at a, at a certain time and place and so forth and so on. But there's good reason to talk about that also as the experience in, in subjective inner experience of devotees. Um, and that's certainly safe uh, ground from a rational point of view. But there's, there's, the, there's, a, there's an important point, I think, in Gaudiya theology that needs to be harmonized with the idea of the um, historical appearance of Krishna. Um, and that is that, that in order to enter Krishna Leela, one has to participate in, 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 in the Leela, in the Boma Leela, and the, Godi, and, and, and the earthly Leela means, and, then, and it's more human-like, and it's sweeter, and the eternal associates come, and then that sadhaka who attains through city goes there, and then has hands-on experience with, and then his daivab intensifies, and so forth. So it's a pretty strong theological statement about a plane of experience that is within the world. And I guess, you know, historically, whether you can date it or what, I don't, you know, you know, trace it out, I don't, I don't think that you, you, you can, but I think that I wouldn't want to, you know, dismiss that because that's a whole aspect of the theory. Somewhere that's got to take place. The idea is that, you know, I'd have to think about it a little bit more, but the idea is that, he, that the human world, uh, it facilitates the humanness of the, of the Godhead, the human-like feature of the Godhead. And it's said to be more sweet. Krishna takes birth in the world, actually, from the Yashoda, whereas in Golok he doesn't. So, you know, be careful you don't dismiss the whole of the Gokul, which is given more precedence than the Golok. And then Diva Goswami makes Golok a manifestation of Gokul. So, um, so there's some crossing over, which is the whole idea of the avatar, crossing from above to, to below and making himself available and so forth and so on. And, uh, and, uh, and we accept that. We accept that. And maybe talked about in a, in, a, in, a, in a more fundamentalist way. Here's the footprint of Krishna. And see this lake is, it's kind of got a golden color because that's where 5,000 years ago Radharani washed her hands when Mother Yashoda put turmeric on them, you know, uh, on her way home, which was a way of saying, I want you to marry my son in the customs of the time or something like that. You know, see, it's still yellow, you know. And someone will come, well, there may be other reasons why it's yellow here, you know, or has it, is it really yellow? And so there's, uh, you know, there's a limitation to that. I mean, there's also the whole idea that the, that the devotee has Bahala, and then he or she projects that bhava onto the world. That may be a way of talking about it. So they have a bhava, they see the world in a particular way. So they see the tree, and the tree, the tamal tree, looks like Krishna to them. And so they deposit their bhava on that tree, and then even more takes on some characteristics. And then people come by and they say, you know, at one time Krishna turned into a tree right here. And, you know, maybe the devotee saw it like that. Hmm? So it's, it's, it's it, 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 he sees the, you know, a marking and he says, oh, in ecstasy, it's says the footprint of Krishna. And he's seeing it like that. And he puts his bhava into it and then it, it becomes the footprint of Krishna. 
So, like, the, the Krishna is definitely in the heart of his devotees, and he's in their bhava. So, wherever they project their bhava, so they go to a place like Mahaprabhu went to Vrindavan, and he said, oh, There's Radhakund. This must be Radhakund. This must be Shamakund. Other people go, What are you talking about? Those are just a couple of little, like, you know, mud puddles or something, you know? He said, No. And so he saw like that. And then, on that basis of his ecstasy, people came together and they met, turned those into big big bathing gods and monuments. Kings spent thousands and thousands of rupees and, you know, whatever was the currency of the time to build a big monument there, honoring the Bhava of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And makes Vrindavan. He told the Goswamis, go there, excavate the places of Krishna's pastime. So they went there and and then in their Bhava and their ecstasy, they projected here, Krishna is this, Krishna. So we're honoring their Bhava. So I guess we could say, First, we've got to enter the heart of Rupa Sanatana Goswami, and then from there, we go to the Goloka. You know, that's a way, to, <laughs> way of talking about it. But there is some interim period. You've got to get their company, something like that. So, But, you know, I mean, nobody can give you definitive answers on these, these type of things. It's not, anybody can say whatever they want, say it's definitive, but you can't you know, go and verify it. So those are my comments. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have a comment, just another comment. Because sometimes I think about it in terms of a parallel world or a parallel universe. Yeah. Like Shreya Maharaj used to say, yeah, that's the world of matter and the world of consciousness, that are in, in, interrelated, you know. One time he said that, how did he put it, uh, uh, I, I was surrounded by, how did he say, I was surrounded yeah. by a unit of consciousness and then I understood what it meant when a flower airplane comes. It says in the Shastras that flower airplanes are there. Yeah. So sometimes I think of it in terms of a parallel universe, but really, uh, you don't know until you go. I know it's out there. I believe it's out <laughs> or, there. Or it's in there. I just don't know. You know like, it's out there or it's in there? Well, you know, we'll exactly how it works, but I think it's out there. <laughs> yeah. Even those experiences can't tell you exactly what it's like. Like he said, well, something surrounded me. And I thought, oh, that must be the idea of the flower airplane coming to take me to Bhagavanta. But I didn't get on board. I had another destination in mind. But I felt that from up, uh, was coming, something was coming down to take me, the chariot. Yeah. So, yeah. I hope I'm not out of context too much, but sometimes I think one of the highest things you told me is one time you said, even if Krishna were not God, which he is, <laughs> we would worship him. Anyway, he's pretty nice, yeah. Yeah, we are what we are, right? We're crazy, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure. Well, Prophet said something similar. If somebody said that Krishna seems to be so lusty, he has 16,100. And Prabhupada said, So, even if he's lusty, he's unlimitedly lusty. <laughs> so we like it. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. And the other side of it is then for Bhajan, then you can also just totally embrace everything in the Bhagavatam. And. Um, it's 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 it's, a, it's also a conducive way of talking about uh, the reality for 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 the sake of bhajan, and then you see the moon in a particular way and the sun in a particular way, and it, mm-hmm. it's conducive to your bhajan, to your spiritual practice. So, so so it works. So it's real. 
when what's real, you know. You know so your bhajan, your, your your realization that your your spiritual progress that's the measure of reality. So I, that's kind of charming, I think. That's why we incorporate a lot of cultural artifacts and and so forth. And uh, you know, we we look at the moon, the full moon, and think of it in a certain way. It's the Gaur Purnim or the Janamastami. Well, that's not the full moon, but the Baldev Purnim. Phases of the moon looked at in terms of uh, Vakal Chandra, you know, Krishna's, uh, the, the, the uh, Chandra, um, what is it? Kal Chandra and Krishna Chandra, he's compared to the moon. Anyway, so these things are helpful for bhajan. At a certain point, after all, you don't really care much of a hoot of anything except for your bhajan, so you just accept the things that are that outlook and you live in your little world and you look to some people be really kind of strange, you know, and backward and so forth. But you could care less, you know, what they, what, what is your hap- the measure of your happiness, ecstasy, and and knowing really as to the folly of uh, of material pursuit and acquisition, which is really you know bottom line what material life is about. There's the takers and then there's and there's the givers. So there's the bogies and there's the yogis, and they are going to have a different outlook of what the world is like, for sure. The, the giving, the yogi, is gonna, the giver, is, is going to have a very poetic take on, on life, very subjective you know, take on, on life. So I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a space where you want to talk about these things to rational people, and you want to, you know, use your intelligence in bhakti, and you don't want to and that means, you know, you have to acknowledge that by other means other than bhakti, certain things are understood. And the world's working on the basis of those understandings and so forth. But then again, as I say, for bhajan, then that's another thing. Hmm. That may not be useful. For preaching, it may be useful. But for bhajan, it may not be useful at all. What's the Bhagavatam for? It's for bhajan. So that way you just accept it all, and there's you know, so many far out things and snakes churning mountains with you know, on turtles' backs, and <laughs> and things are coming out of the ocean and so forth. <laughs> no harm. Yeah. Well, well, won't you actually see? Won't you actually experience? Like, for instance, yeah. if you were a devotee of Korma, say, yeah. say, and you actually, well, wouldn't you actually? Experience that. See yeah, it, it'd, be, it'd be more real than anything is real yeah. than anything else. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, because it's going to only be described to a certain extent, also. So no harm. But it's a whole, you know, it's a whole different thing. So then, but the problem is again, then if you want to take that and say, no, this is right, and the material science, the present cosmological worldview is wrong, then you're you're wrong in doing that. Mm-hmm. That's why Prabhupada said, if there's a link, if you take a link out of the chain, the whole thing becomes. You know, if there's a weak link in the chain, you know, when you if you say, well, this is wrong, this isn't correct in the Bhagavatam, you know, then that makes for the weak link in the chain, and then the whole thing just. Well, it's it's right, but it's not. It's wrong to say that what the Bhagavatam says about how far the moon is from the earth is right and what science says is wrong. It's better to say they're talking about two different things. Right. That's what, that's what they're trying to do now in the, uh, 
idea with the planetarium. They're, they're talking in terms of invisibility and different multidimensionalism and all that, rather than just concrete yeah. matter, you know, so to speak. Yeah. But then, unfortunately, what some people do is they try to take that Bhagavatam's cosmological description and say, "Just see, therefore, this modern science view is is wrong." And 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 again, they're living on based on what that science has found out and so forth. They're typing it into the computer, and they wouldn't be able to do that without you know. So that's what's wrong. Well, then they make a fool of themselves. Yeah. And the whole the whole Christian consciousness movement in general. Yeah, that doesn't. That's wrong. <laughs> that's the wrong thing to do. Really yeah, and that's what the, that's what they're doing. So, in order to avoid that, and you know, and, and and curb that tendency and so forth, then we kind of talk about it a little differently. And I think we come to a good conclusion here: how to think about it.